and welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast. I'm your host and Flux co-founder, Corinne Mitchell. I've spent my career exploring technology's role in amplifying impact within our social sector, and more specifically, helping funders to learn to leverage technology and data to connect and better serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities. In this podcast series, my team and I will profile social sector leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry futurists to explore this fascinating intersection of funding, technology, and policy. We're here to analyze the most critical and formative topics and trends that shape philanthropy both today and tomorrow. We hope this series leaves you inspired to think and act through a more collective and visionary lens. Philanthropy has had many guiding principles over the last hundred or so years, and both funders and grantees have attempted to rewrite this playbook to varying degrees of success. This week's guest has a fresh take on what I think you, our incredible community, might find very interesting to hear. Ewan Kirk is a tech entrepreneur and the founder and director of Turner Kirk Trust, an evidence-led multi-million pound family foundation that supports STEM, conservation, and early childhood development causes in the UK and the developing world. Ewan, hello. Welcome, welcome. Hello. It's lovely to talk to you, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us. And I know we had a chance to catch up just prior to this around our love of cycling and the Vuelta and all things. But today we're really focused on philanthropy. So we're changing gears from our, our previous conversation <laughs> to something slightly more akin to what we might cover in this podcast. But, you know, before, um, while well, I've had a chance to kind of get to know you, do you mind telling a little bit um, about yourself to the audience and what made you interested in the social sector in this industry? Uh, sure, sure. Um, I mean, we, we could, of course, have a chat about cycling, but I'm sure we the listeners are, le- are less interested <laughs> in that. And there's probably better cycling podcasts as well. Um, so originally, I was an academic mathematician. I have a PhD in general relativity. Uh, I ran a software company while I was doing my PhD. And eventually, I realized that there wasn't going to be a huge amount of money being an academic. So I went to the dark side and I joined Goldman Sachs and I was a partner there in charge of the the geeks, the uh, mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists, the men and women who did all of the front office systems, risk management, structuring and derivatives design. I retired from Goldman in 2005 and I had a year off. I bought more guitars, I bought more bicycles, I bought a motorcycle and then sold it because it was a cliche, Uh, and then um, uh, travel around the world with my family for a year. Then after that, I started a systematic hedge fund based in Cambridge, very quantitative, very geeky, lots of programmers, lots of mathematicians, all uh, designing models of the market. I sold that in 2016 to a Swiss asset manager. And since then, I've been focusing more on technology investments. Um, I run a thing called Deep Tech Labs in Cambridge, or I'm the chair of a thing in in Cambridge called Deep Tech Labs, which uh, helps deep technology companies accelerate their growth. I'm involved with the uh, Isaac Newton Institute here. I'm on the board of some companies. And of course, I spend quite a bit more time now on philanthropy because when I was uh, either a partner at Goldman or uh, running my own hedge fund, uh, philanthropy was the sort of thing that you did when you had a spare moment and people would come to me and say, look, you know, we'd like to raise some money for this. And I'd say, 
hey, sure, here's some money. Now go away and never talk to me again um, because I'm too busy. And I'm not sure that's really necessarily the right way to do philanthropy. Right. Uh, so so what, what sort of made me, I, I've always been interested in philanthropy in terms of wanting to do good. But what made me interested in the process of philanthropy, which is a slightly different thing, was setting up our own foundation, our own trust, and working out what the right thing to do with that was. So as you as you got into this in the social sector, I agree it's it's so compelling because to your point to make the impact that you want to oftentimes being slightly more engaged or helping in ways that are beyond just money but rather operational help or support that comes in a lot of different areas and, and especially with your incredible background, albeit you know a PhD and relatively not all those things are that may be helpful in philanthropy as well. But but you do have incredible talents that you can bring to you know, the trust. So tell me a little bit about how you determined your areas of focus. And, and as you sort of went into building the trust, you know, what did that look like in terms of how you wanted to engage? Well, I guess the first thing that you've got to think about, or at least acknowledge, is how much money do you have to spend? So, you know, we're not the Bill Gates Foundation. So that almost... That's the very first thing where it lowers your horizons. I mean, much as I would like to be able to solve the problem of malaria in Africa, just don't have enough money for that. I mean, that's that's the simple things. Um, the other thing, and I, I think I've said this quite a lot, is there are some problems which are truly government-sized, where it's just too big for philanthropy to to actually do anything with. There's estimated to be, I think, something like $2 trillion of philanthropic assets um, in the world. Now, that's a lot of money, but if you spent that all just doing stuff, it would then be gone. Mm -hmm. And $2 trillion is kind of some relatively small proportion of the US government budget. And the US government spends that every year on mm-hmm. things, some things which are sort of clearly, I guess, not philanthropic. Like right, 1.3 trillion. You're, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Per year. But per then, year. Yes, it's yeah, no joke. Per year. But then <laughs> it does spend quite a lot of thing, quite a lot of money on things like education and health, which could quite easily fall under that philanthropic uh, ba- banner. So the very first thing is to say how much conceivably or realistically can I spend on a particular project? And Mm -hmm. for us, you know, that number isn't a government sized number or a Bill Gates sized number. So you, so that cuts down your horizons a little bit. The second thing, uh, second thing is obviously areas of interest. Um, you know, I am super interested in STEM. STEM has been great to me and it's been a good thing for me to be good at STEM. And I, I find it exciting and interesting and intellectually challenging. My wife is very interested in early child development and conservation. So there's two areas that it's not a question of having expertise in it. It's a question of having interest in it because you have to think of philanthropy a little bit as 
something, something that you are going to be interested in. I mean, there are right. a lot of you know, very important parts of philanthropy. Uh, you know, pick one, you know, medical science, curing cancer, solving the mm -hmm. Alzheimer's problem. You know, my, my mother's got, got Alzheimer's. It's a sort of personal thing. But I'm just not interested in that process because right. I don't really understand it and I can't certainly can't add any value. So so the areas are so the size is determined by how much philanthropy you can yeah, how much philanthropy philanthropic capital, I'm sorry, you have. The areas are are constrained by interest mm -hmm. and then the process has to be constrained in some way as well. How do you decide what it is that you want to do? One of the things that we have thought about a lot and are very keen on is the concept of permission to fail. It is allowing, donating money to relatively high-risk projects, which potentially could have a very big uh, impact, mm -hmm. but also acknowledging the fact that if you're going to uh, donate money and um, to a particular cause, you have to make it explicit that it's okay to fail. Because that's how experimentation works. Right. That's how phys physicists and scientists and conservationists and everyone, they go and try something and it should be okay to fail. And that gives you a lot of freedom. There's some something very um, interesting that that I guess maybe it's it's the academic side of you, but that's the beautiful part when you talk to. I remember, um, oh, who was it? Neil deGrasse Tyson was doing an, an interview, and people were saying, "What are you going to debate people about this?" He's like, "No, we don't debate. We're academics. We discuss. We show points, and whoever has the right <laughs> points, the other one says that is interesting, and you build from that." <laughs> collaborative but it's a really interesting concept because i think you're right it is predicated at, at the most fundamental way on getting it wrong so that you can get it right yeah. so i think that's the yeah, thing do, that's so talk yeah. about yeah when we talk about this idea of where where we need to take this industry and this like adversity to risk and this adversity to getting things wrong it's like oh my goodness like have we lost our bearings it's almost like we're stuck i sometimes think about this with philanthropy it's kind of a corinne tangent but i feel like we're oftentimes stuck between being heavily academic and wanting to be able to be very you know proof driven and data driven and all the things that make it um, solid academically, but then we don't have the business savvy to like run the other way and say like, how are we going to make this work? It's just this funny, just, I don't know, this discrepancy between adopting principles of both, but being stuck in the middle is where I feel like sometimes philanthropy is. Yes, um, I, I, I think we're a little bit stuck with this concept of impact. So, yeah. you know, impacts has been for decades, a really big deal in philanthropy. Show me your impact. So somebody gives a hundred dollars, a million dollars, I don't know, in Bill Gates' case, a billion dollars to a particular project. And they want to know that it's had impact. And it, they want to know that, you know, that this number of people have been helped. These, this number of people have been cured of a particular disease. These numbers of wells have been drilled in, in Africa. These numbers of prisoners haven't gone back to, to jail. 
And I think, and of course, nobody wants to waste money on of course not yeah. low impact things. Mm-hmm. But it does stop the philanthropic organisations themselves, the charities. It stops them experimenting because they right. have to show results. So if they've said they're going to drill or use drilling wells in Africa as an example, but there mm-hmm. are thousands of them, obviously. If they've said, you know, for every $100 you give us, we will drill one well in Africa and we're going to drill a 1,000 wells in Africa. They kind of got to be able to go back to their donors at the end of the year and say, look, we drilled wells. Mm-hmm. Now, if there happened to be a better way to drill wells, right. but it was going to require a year of research and development and maybe a few of them failed until they uh, got the whole process working better, then they can't do that because mm-hmm. they're going to go back to their donors at the end of the year and say, ah, sorry, man, we only managed to do 300 right. wells and then they'll never get any money again. So, right. so, And it should be the case that philanthropic money should be the most risk tolerant of money right. anywhere. Right. I can completely understand why if you're a civil servant in the UK or the US working for the government and the government's got a program and it's a hundred million dollar program and it's supposed to do something, it's a really bad thing if the program fails. Because right. it's in the front of the Wall Street Journal and you lose your job and and politicians lose votes and everyone looks at you and you're an, an idiot because it's... So for government programs, they are very risk-averse. Right, it's taxpayer that. money, sure. I mean, that makes sense that they would be yeah. hopefully discerning about it. But I, I agree with you, like the yeah, private yeah. sector is so different in that sense. Yeah, because in many cases, of right. course, you know, philanthropic money... I mean, philanthropic money is, it's not an investment. It goes to zero. It gets vaporized doing, doing good. So you should be willing to see that money being used to experiment. The, the, the classic example for us in the trust is, um, we came across this, um, charity called SolarAid and their gig is that they can get solar lights with uh, LED lights with a solar panel and a charger for your phone, and they can get them delivered into Africa at some incredibly low cost, like to the dock in Kinshasa or wherever it is. But they they wanted they obviously want to distribute them, and they didn't really know the right way to distribute them. So they kind of came to us and said, "Well, we're thinking about doing this. You know, what do you think?" And I said, well, look, why don't you just pick five different ways of doing it? Maybe you sell them outright. Maybe you rent them. Maybe it's a higher purchase agreement. Maybe it's done through the schools. Maybe it's done through mobile phone distributors. Pick five different ways of doing it in five different villages and run the experiment for six months. And, And this is the critical thing. And I literally don't care if all five fail because you will have <laughs> yes. learned something, right? right? And you will have learned that these five ways are not the right way to do it. So then you can go and try some other way. And and that's a really great way of doing it. I mean, that's the interesting part about it. It's, it's making sure in the academic sense, if you were to have a failure, you would let people know, hey, 
I tried this. Don't do it this way. And that's the part about the collaborative, cooperative economy that we work in here in philanthropy. And that's the part that's so interesting is by not sharing it or by, by burying it into a document or into, in the case of my, my brain, technology that doesn't let that get out, you end up you end up letting people trip over themselves to make the same mistakes you did. So it's it's almost in it's an imperative <laughs> that the guiding principle <laughs> one is failure and sharing. And, and I wonder how many other things like that pop up to you in terms of the guiding principles about how you work and the things that you think are so critical to moving things forward. Yeah, I, I often, you know, if I'm meeting people, I mean, very often we do things with university departments because they tend to be on the cutting edge. And, you know, one of the questions I ask, you know, I'll get a presentation about, I, I don't know, some really quite interesting research that's maybe going to go somewhere that's going to do something really quite extraordinary. And I always ask, what is the experiment you would do if you, if you didn't really care, you, you didn't have to write a paper on it? What's the most risky experiment you'd really want to do that would would it might fail, but might succeed and would revolutionize what you're doing. And it's amazing how often the researchers say, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're normally raising money to go and do this kind of trial. But actually, if I didn't, if if it was okay to fail, I'd give this a try. I'd, I'd do something a little bit different. So that's that's one of the things I think that's important. And I think it's also, to come back to the point about you know, the size of problems. It's also important to think of philanthropy as a as a catalyst, as something which can make a change. Which, if you really want to make a big global change, then you can put you know the shoulder of either the private sector or the public sector can come in behind and really push it along. So. Try and do things which have a high catalyst quotient. Something that, if if this does work, right, and it's really obvious, you know, we're we're in the process of funding uh, um, a little trial into helping kids to be better at STEM uh, in the west of Scotland. Uh, we're doing this through Glasgow University and. It's a pretty. It's a fairly low cost trial. It you will know, run for a year, but if it works, and it might not, and that's okay. But if it does work, then this is a really cheap thing that the UK government or the right. Scottish government, whichever one it might be, can get behind. And it's a really easy thing to get into schools. And if it makes a significant difference, then. Bingo! You've catalyzed a change. Now, I am, you know, as I said earlier, quite happy if this fails. Um, but wouldn't it be great if it succeeds? Right. And to your point, the marrying of that again, activity, the impact, but also the policy side, and, and helping to encode whether it be a curriculum that can be disseminated out or various things. That's kind of the key, like you said, catalyst to saying how do we get that come yeah. coming together and that public and private partnership is something that I think you guys do a lot better um, in, in Europe than we do in the US, but we are starting to get there. And I wonder sometimes if our rate limiting step is really around like 
the fact that technology hasn't gotten us there yet. And that's something obviously I, I personally care about. Um, but it, it is very interesting um, to see those, like you said, and understanding that there has to be some catalyst involved too. I'm with you. I, I, I agree with you. I, the one place I would probably disagree with you, and I, I hope Please. you're okay with me. Disagree, oh, gosh, always. Yeah. Um, I don't actually think that philanthropy will in any way be powered by technology, not the process. Oh, gosh, I am. We'll take it. Probably, uh, yes. It, it agreed. Technology helps to ease uh, human problems. It's never going to be the answer. I, I'm absolutely with you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of our problems will be solved by technology. You know, climate change problems, for example, are you know, right at the mm -hmm. forefront of we need climate tech to solve these problems because they're coming at us pretty fast. Mm -hmm. But I think the process of philanthropy is quite hard to technologize, if that's a word. You know, I'm a, a massive fan of technology across the board, and I'm a, you know, I'm a programmer, a mathematician, I'm a geek. I, I, I love technology, and I'm You're sitting here amidst... Nerdery. You're part of the nerdery. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am definitely part of the nerdery. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, I, I don't think there's that way of maybe in catalyzing philanthropy raising more money, spending the money better, because it is a, it's a real one-on-one -on -one thing. You know, I, I would never, never um, think about funding any project that I hadn't met the lead researcher on or that met the person that was going to do it, because somehow there is that very personal link, which is nice. You know, I mean, I, I, I like that, but I think it will be quite resistant to technology. Got it. So tell me, I mean, as we kind of look at, at what we can do, you know, to build further impact, to build further capacity, obviously, like you mentioned, technology is one element, partnership with mm -hmm. the public sector is another. What are some of the missing elements that you think need to be in place that, that you know, today's philanthropy and charitable giving may need to sort of embrace further for us to kind of usher into this new age? <sighs> That. So that is a hard question, um, <laughs> and obviously, obviously, if I had some magic solution, I'd probably keep it to myself and start my own <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but um, I, I, I don't know. I think there is. Um, it, it's quite easy for philanthropy to become fragmented, in that you know, one ends up with lots of foundations and lots of trusts doing lots of different things. Now, you know, obviously, I am guilty of that myself. But but we probably like others believe that you know we're very niche and very focused on this permission to fail and catalyst. So sometimes uh, and again I'm well aware that I'm guilty of this. Sometimes um, people who donate money want to get too involved in the process. So you know, if Alzheimer's is your thing and you give a hundred million dollars to Alzheimer's, then you want your you want to kind of get involved in this and push directions of of research or directions of philanthropy, which might not be right. Um, it is very important to remember that the people who are actually on the ground doing the charitable work know a huge amount more about 
doing the charitable work than the donors do. The donors might be experts in business, or they might be experts in healthcare or mathematics, whatever that might be. But they should not get involved in designing the projects. And we never get involved in designing the projects or designing the programs that we might invest in or, or donate to because it's not our job to do that. So having engaged donors is great for charities. It's just they have to not be too engaged, I think. Uh, I think the some of the power has to be uh, reserved for the charity to tell the donor what the right thing to do is. Right. And as you look at those those charities, are there structures that you have found work well? You know, when you look at after after the money has been given and they're progressing through their impact and and like you said, defining some of the path forward as the you know resident expert in that. <laughs> have you found there are ways that you engage with them from an ongoing instead of you know a formal reporting or certain ways that you found you've been able to support them best or give them space to sort of like you said reflect back any changes they need like what structures do you put in place to help with that ongoing support? I, I, I mean I, I ideally what I'd like to be able to do is say here's the money now go off and do something good see ya. Now <laughs> That's sometimes a little bit hard to do. So what <laughs> we tend, what we, <laughs> I mean, and and to be honest, you know, a lot of people wouldn't like that. A lot of people no, want the engagement with the, with the donor. Um, mm -hmm. What we tend to do is, you know, on a on a an annual or a multi year project, we probably want to have fairly informal um, reporting on a monthly basis. And by fairly informal, I mean, send me an email, let me know how it's going. And, you know, I don't want to have a 25-page report with charts and four different colors and a, and a video at the back of it. Just send me an email, let me know what's going. Most importantly, and this is the thing that I really emphasize, is tell me what's going wrong. I, I don't want to hear about the massive successes. What I want to hear about is what's going wrong. And that, that's another thing that we try and focus the recipients on is don't don't tell us all the time about how great it is because, okay, it's great. The thing that's interesting is what's not working because what's not working is telling you a lot more than what's working. I, I've, I've always thought that what would have been a fantastic business book would be just a list of everyone that's failed horribly yes. in what they yes. do, right? Because <laughs> you learn an awful lot more from failures than you learn from successes. So we tend to do that, and we tend to have just one sort of formal meeting at the end of the process where we get a proper report. But you know, what I really don't want to do is to add an administrative burden if you're going to give people a donation to go and do something, they should just be focusing on that. 
Agreed. It's actually, so two things. One is I love the idea of like a failure book because it, it is actually ironic when I started Fluffs like, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago, whatever it was, there are mistakes that I have made that um, we have a, a new investor who's fantastic. And he wrote a book that had, you know, here are all the places I failed. And I was like, I did every one of those. Where were you 12 years ago? That's right. Like every single one of those things he did. I was like, man, it is so painful to, to realize that I could have avoided yep. every one of those issues. But actually the one thing I would say that really compelling, there's a group that we work with in South Africa and they do exactly that too. They ask their colleagues and their their impact and change makers what went wrong, and and they actually publish it on their website. So one of the questions in their final report is if you could share one of your you know learning experiences, um, and by that they mean things that went wrong, and they publish it on the site so that it's actually open, and they just put it on their website. It's the coolest thing because they're like, here's everything that was learned from the community on the monies we gave in X, Y, and Z areas. So, but it's that same concept, like you said, of what went wrong and how do we how do we get it out there so that people don't make those mistakes again? Yeah, there's a, I, I actually thought that I'd come up with that idea myself, but now I find that somebody else has done it, which is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 I sort of came to this because I think, I think it's true that um, charities, uh, people that are spending philanthropic money, there is a resistance to admitting that you've made a mistake. And mm -hmm. you know, it, it, I guess it comes a little bit from that book by Matthew Syed, um, Black Box Thinking. Part of the reason why air travel is so safe is because if a pilot makes a mistake, then he or she has to report it to the FAA or the, the right. CAA. And if they report it, there is no... Um, consequences to that. So everyone finds out about mistakes really fast and they don't make them again. And that is definitely not true in philanthropy. You see a lot yeah. of money ending up doing the same old stuff, which at the end of the day doesn't really work, which is right. uh, quite sad, I think. So yeah, if there was one change I would make, it, I would make all charities focus on here are the mistakes that we made. Please don't make these Again, <laughs> or Again, avoid them yes. where possible. <laughs> avoid them where possible. So I think, you know, one of the things that is so compelling to me in this conversation is just a way to think about things differently. And I think oftentimes, you know, at the very beginning of the episode, we talked about, you know, there are always folks that are trying to reinvent philanthropy and do things differently. And especially in the land of, you know, a lot of, we'll call it the new money that's coming in, there's this almost like bucking mm -hmm. of the system, like we can do it differently. And, but there's things to learn. And and to your point, the whole idea of, of being able to be okay with, we'll call it even failure, you know, the idea that this mm -hmm. is something that we can find resilience and power in the community to do things right, I think is so compelling. So I'm so grateful that you've shared that with us. Are there any other um, like chunks or, or sort of things that you want to share with the community of just maybe sound bites, things that they might want to remember um, from today's episode? Oh, gosh, these, these hard questions are coming thick and fast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> be, be prepared for failure. Um, scale your philanthropic goals to the size of your philanthropic pot, whether or not that's a money pot or a time pot, scale your goals to the things that you can do. Um, and if you make a mistake, tell people and so they don't make the mistake again. I love it. 
Thank you so much. So as always, we're going to wrap up the episode with little rapid fire questions. You know a couple mm-hmm. of them, but I'm also adding some on because I've learned more about you from today's time together. So I'm, I'm going to improv on you here too. Um, but we're okay. just going to run through them. Just answer them as quick, short questions. I encourage you to just say whatever first thing comes to your mind. So if okay. you had a superpower, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, if I had a superpower, it would be to, this is a cycling thing, it would be to generate eight watts per kilo. Oh, look at you. You just want to win the Tour de France. <laughs> what was that something I like just you, want to win. you can generate 6.2 or 6.4? Is that it, that you can win the Tour? That's, that's it. And then, and then yeah. people could, then uh, Marvel could do the absolute worst um, Marvel movie, which would be called Bicycle Man. But there we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, I actually hit over three um, on my, I, I do, so I cycle too. And I hit over three and I was ecstatic. And then they heard, they told me on the, the tour, it was like 6.4. And I was like, well, I have some some challenges ahead of me yeah. to get to the tour. <laughs> I don't know I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid. That would be hard. Unless I get Unless I get bitten by a radioactive spider, <laughs> uh, it's never going yeah. to happen to me. Yeah. Well, maybe that's your superpower is getting radioactively yeah. bit and then getting up to eight. Um, okay. All right. What is the um, what is the thing that you're most proud of accomplishing in your career? Starting a financial services firm that was dominated by mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists, the geeks, um, mm-hmm. and making it a nice place to work and making a lot of people make a lot of money. Nice. Um, best book that you've read this summer? Um, I've read quite a lot this summer, but the one I'm going to go with is Beyond um, the Astonishing Story of the First Human to Leave Our Planet and Journey into Space by Stephen Walker. It's an incredibly well-researched and detailed book about Yuri Gagarin's first flight into space. It's fascinating. If you liked the book and the film, The Right Stuff, you will like this. Uh, And it's also just fascinating about uh, the Soviet Union at that time and the sheer bravery and risk um, that was taken to do this. And it also weaves in the whole Kennedy, uh, Bay of Pigs. Oh, interesting. The U.S. falling behind. You know, it was, it, it's, it's a fascinating read and really humanizes quite a lot of the story. And the author, Stephen Walker, has done an enormous amount of research into things that have just opened up, you know, archives that have opened up in Moscow. So if, if you like space and you know, I, I was, you know, I, I remember watching the moon landings. I was a real space geek. Um, it is fascinating. And even if you don't like space, it's a great human interest book as well. So I think we're destined to be friends because I went to space camp when I was 10. Like I was that into space that I went to like school hours and And it was, I was not the coolest kid, but I really did like it. So I'm a, I feel like we have a lot in common friend. I just want to put it out there that we, we were destined to meet clearly. So, so growing up, um, you know, and being in the West of Scotland, I would read books avidly about space exploration and I would know all of these things. 
However, there were always references to objects which were in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington. Ah. Now, when you grow up, when you grow up in the west of Scotland, Washington might as well be on Pluto. It's very far. Because it's, a long, <laughs> it's a long, long way away. But I always yes. had this dream that it would be this fantastic cornucopia of amazing space and flight stuff. And then, oh, 40, 50 years, 40 years later, I was doing some business in Washington and a flight got cancelled and I had an entire day unexpectedly in Washington. And I went to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and I spent all day there. Oh yeah, I eat lunch there. I'm with you. Every single thing. It was so cool. it was just joyous to be able to see all these things which I'd known had been there since I was you know, since I was young, but then I could actually see Yuri Gagarin's spacesuit or um, the Apollo lander. So that was that so was an, an exceptionally eating. I love that. And I actually like when I when I have time and I'll, I'll have like maybe like I'll be in like Arlington, which is nowhere really that close to it. And I'll be like, I have two hours and I'll go eat lunch at the air and I'll like bring my little lunch and go sit in there. <laughs> it's like and totally and enjoyable. <laughs> it's, it's like sounds weird, but I'm like, it's open. I don't have to, you know, it's free. Like and I go yeah, and sit there and just happily <laughs> hang out with space equipment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right final question and then i promise we can wrap it since i've completely lost track of what we're talking about um in a good way so um this is an important one who was your favorite writer in the tour de france this year uh woot van Ark. oh yeah i mean He's so yeah, interesting. I, I i know why he didn't win because that wasn't his job to win right. but boy is he just just the all-round totally amazing cyclist uh, it was just incredible um and so yeah Wood, Wood van art is um actually i'm going to tell you a Wood van art story so <laughs> uh, i i cycle a lot on new york because i've got a, a house out there and Wood van art some years ago was obviously out doing training on new york and i follow him in strava so i see I his <laughs> I see his Strava segment type. And so uh, there's one segment quite close to where we, we live where I once got within about a second of Wootman Art on this, this segment. And what? As, as one of my and as one of my friends said, Yeah, but he probably stopped for a shit along the way. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, if you're yeah. with Wout, I'm very <laughs> very impressed um because yeah, <laughs> oh no no really i mean normally yeah. yeah normally he is you know like you know it's half the he's, time i mean it, it's just extraordinary yeah um, no it's when you look at those I mean, numbers and, and you look at like they're like in strava obviously nate you'll cut this part but when they're like morning ride and it's like 192 miles you're like what <laughs> <laughs> like in Andorra, and it's like the, about the same amount of like mileage. Like, yeah, it's insane. The other thing that was actually really funny. Um, I was actually really intrigued on Wout because you know so much of me is like, why is he not a GC? And then he did this interview the other day, and it was like, mm -hmm. I can't. I don't want to be a GC. I like the classics, and like I would have yeah. to change the the structure of my body 
to like mm-hmm. be a GP. And he was like, I don't know that. Like, he's like, I'd worry. I like would blow it all out. And he's like, I get enough joy from, you know, they made, it made change, but like they were doing an mm-hmm. interview, like, you know, Christian Vandeveld and all were like, I just don't think he's ever going to do it. And then a couple people were like, no, he's definitely going, but he seems to be adamant that he just really enjoys the domestique role and just dominating the shit out of everyone on the entire field. Uh, like he like I pushes mean, like, all right, you're at the front, yeah. go back and pick up Jonas. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and he brings him back up. Elon, thank you so much for joining us today. What a complete joy to have you on the podcast, um, sharing about yourself, your work, and of course, cycling, which I appreciated. Uh, but most impo- importantly, your insights on, on really how we can start to rethink the way that, that we gift, grant, and make impact in the world. So thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely my pleasure, Karen. It was really, it was really fun to chat. And you know, I'm sure we don't you, know, you don't often talk about cycling on the podcast, but it was definitely. <laughs> uh, it, we we also talked about much more important things. We can start another podcast on our 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 armchair expert <laughs> work <laughs> in cycling. <laughs> All right, good. our listeners can learn more about the Turner Kirk Trust at turner kirkorg Thank you all for joining us today. You can listen and download our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at flux.io. That's F-L-U-X-X dot I-O.